Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches feet just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. And a one, two, three, four. Mm. Jo- Jonah, are you good, man? Dave, I'm, I'm, I'm TikToking. If I could nail this shoe dance, I just might go viral, bud. Sweet Jesus, why would you want to do that? Dave, between you and me and our thousands upon thousands of listeners, I didn't just lose weight for my own mental and physical health. Okay, I lost it because I'm auditioning to be the next Spider-Man. Really? That's uh, surprising. <laughs> Well, they play these things pretty close to the vest, but I'm pretty sure I'm in the running. Do you know who else they're considering? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of my fellow youths, you know, Finn, Finn Wolfhard, Ella Emhoff, the entire cast of the Cars for Kids commercial. Not a lot. That's not a big list. Well, buddy, I I hate to be the one to say it to you, but uh, you might be a little too, uh, let's see, what's the word? Old. You're old. Fuck off, Dave. I am 39. I am still in the pocket. Yeah. And Peter Parker never will be, because this is Galaxy Brains, Jonah, and today we're having a web-slingingly good time talking Spider-Man reboots, comics history, and our friendly neighborhood teenage dirtbag with our old pal, Susanna Polo. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the podcast where movies, TV, and overthinking collide. I'm Dave Schilling. And I'm Dave's sweet elderly uncle, Jonah Ray. See, I told you, you're old. 39 is old. Wait, hold on. I'm just reading the lines off the... Oh, come on. (laughs) As I said last week, Jonah, I write the show and you do what I say because I am the master and you are but the learner. Good night, San Diego. And go fuck yourself. (laughs) Yes, this is what I'm doing to you. Each week on the show, I torture Jonah, but we also start with the logical brain, advance to the critical brain, question everything with the interrogation brain, and of course, arrive at the blessed state of the galaxy brain. Today, our guest is Polygon Comics editor Susanna Polo, and we are shooting our thick, sticky webs all over the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Jesus Christ, Dave. Oh, baby, I didn't write that. That one was Kylie. (laughs) She is always finding sexual things to put into this show, and I just read them. Horniest podcast out there. It's sick. It's just this show is dripping with sexual tension, and I'm not sure between who. Anyway, we're going to be talking about Spider-Man this week. But before we get all wrapped up in spider minutia, we should take a quick study break at Empire State University in a segment we call Logic Brain. The Spider-Man franchise has somehow lasted through three distinct incarnations. The original Sam Raimi trilogy, the less-than-amazing Mark Webb duology, 
and the MCU incarnation starring Tom Holland. Also the live-action 70s TV show and the 90s cartoon, Dave. Plus the Sony spinoffs, Venom 1 and 2, and the upcoming Morbius movie with... Uh, don't say it, don't say it, don't say that name here. Jared Leto. Uh, somehow you made it worse. <laughs> he always finds a way too, doesn't he? He sure does. But what about Into the Spider-Verse? Arguably maybe the best Spider-Man movie ever? Okay, sure. Yeah, I guess the point here really is that the Spider-Man franchise has now reached Batman levels of oversaturation. Now every demographic has their own Spider-Man to love and adore. But the one thing that unites just about every incarnation of Spider-Man is that the lead character is usually a young, impish little boy. What's up with that? He just wants to dance. Let him dance. <laughs> to figure out why Spider-Man always has to be a prepubescent teenager. We're going to have to graduate to a segment we call Critical Brain. He just wants to sling whips. Oh, boy. All right. So, Jonah, the first Spider-Man feature film was in 2002. It was a massive pop culture event in that year. I saw it in my hometown of Merced. It was a really revelatory experience. I really loved that movie. What did you think of the first Spider-Man? To know that Sam Raimi was going to be doing a Spider-Man film, I thought it was going to be super rad. I had just moved to Los Angeles in late 2001. I was living down in San Pedro. I, I found this theater not too far away from where I was living, and I just like I went by myself, bought a ticket for a Friday afternoon show because I had the day off, and... And it just blew me away. It was super fun. And I'd never seen an action-packed superhero movie that was that exciting at that point. Yeah, it was in a unique period of cinema history because it was, it had come after X-Men. Two years after the X-Men movie came out, we got Spider-Man. And the X-Men movie kind of broke open the dam. And then the superhero movies <laughs> flooded through and buried our society. It just, it feels like it came out of nowhere, Spider-Man. We get Spider-Man. And it's Sam Raimi, the guy who did Darkman. That guy, Evil Dead guy, is directing Spider-Man. The first sort of like intimations of a Spider-Man movie that got to me were James Cameron doing it. And I remember getting a Wizard magazine in like 1998 or 99. And they had like the mock-up. Some fan did a mock-up of what would the Spider-Man poster be if James Cameron got to make this movie? And it had Leo as Spider-Man. And I can't remember who was J. Jonah Jameson, but it was probably whoever was hot back then. You know, Nick Nolte or something. God damn it, Peter Parker. I need pictures of Spider-Man. Ah, gee. Are you really going to do it? I, no. What the fuck was that? Some horrible monster. You know, Nick Nolte auditioning for Yoda. Oh, Peter, <laughs> pictures you have? Mm? <laughs> the point is, like, that was such a crazy idea. Oh, Spider-Man as a movie. We had never really seen a Marvel character done well. And then this movie comes out and it's like a comic book come to life. The idea that they could do what they did at that time to make Spider-Man fly through the air. Special effects had finally caught up with the idea of Spider-Man because we'd seen the cartoon, obviously, which was great. The TV show, which really just didn't even try to make him Spider-Man. It's just a guy in a Spider-Man costume beating up ninjas. This was, it was like visceral. It was amazing. And a romantic subplot that actually worked in a superhero movie. You are amazing. Some people don't think so. But you are. Nice to have a fan. I really felt like there was chemistry between Tobey Maguire 
and Kirsten Dunst. And there's that, of course, the classic scene where they kiss. Upside down, which was parodied in an episode of The O.C., of course. Of course. Of course it was. (laughs) (laughs) But it is funny that it's like of this time, there was these genre directors stepping into the the mainstream. I mean, like Peter Jackson. Yeah, fall of 2001, Lord of the Rings. And then summer 2002, Spider-Man. And yeah, these are like weird horror directors. We've talked about this a lot. When we did our Lord of the Rings episode, we talked a lot about Peter Jackson kind of stepping out of the meet the feebles sort of world of like fucking horny, weird, scary puppets into making perhaps the greatest trilogy of all time. And Sam Raimi did that too. He really leveled up here and he'd he'd been an iconoclast in Hollywood for a long time and struggled to have his voice heard. And then Sony and Marvel at the time said, let's have Sam Raimi direct (laughs) Spider-Man. That really changes your life. I think Taika Waititi would probably agree that doing Thor changed how people looked at him. You know, he was the guy who did Hunt for the Wilder People and... While we're doing The Shadows. Yeah, exactly. All kind of small movies. Small, funny, but heartfelt movies. And then someone said, ah, you know what? What should we do with Thor? What if we made it funny? All right, let's get that guy. He'll do it. <laughs> and then now he's got an Oscar. Like, it's just, it's interesting to see how that, that works out. And it worked out for Sam Raimi to the point where he did two more of these movies. Spider-Man 2, some would say, is the best superhero movie of all time. And it has, of course, that great sequence in the operating room where Dr. Octavius has got his arms finally. We're ready, doctor. Anybody here take shop class? (laughs) (laughs) There's just so much Sam Raimi in that sequence. If it's point of view, camera movements, or an arm comes through the frame with a bone saw, like very evocative of his style. And he had finally gotten through all of that stuff. And it started to backfire, of course, at Spider-Man 3. (laughs) I remember seeing Spider-Man 3 in the Cinerama Dome. And, of course, there's the emo, the bangs, Spider-Man. I'll pay you the usual rate. If you want the shots, I'll take the staff job. Double the money. Peter Parker, where he's like, his hair is black. He's like cruising down the streets, all like gacked out on cocaine, like <laughs> essentially. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Basically embodying the, you know, shitty hipsterism of the An time. agent at WME. <laughs> it was a very convoluted storyline. This is a movie where it's clear Sam Raimi has a story he wants to tell about Sandman, who is played by Thomas Hayden Church, who had just been feted with awards and nominations for Sideways. And so he was hot shit at the time, and he comes in to play Sandman. And famously, the studio said, well, what about Venom? Kids love Venom. What about Venom? And instead of Sam Raimi saying, you know what? I I don't want to do Venom. I'm not going to do this movie. You can find somebody else to make a movie with Venom. And he shoehorns Venom in. Instead of like what she should have done was just swap out. Take out Sandman. And maybe it was too late. Maybe the deal with Thomas Church was already done. Yeah, that's very possible. It's possible that it was like, well, we just got to make this movie work. And so it's a very disjointed movie. A movie that does have a lot of Sam Raimi comedy. And I think that bugs people. And I think that is the moment when the idea of the auteur doing these movies really started to sour on people. Because then he was out. He didn't do Spider-Man 4. Instead, they bring in... Mark Webb. Mark Webb had directed 500 Days of Summer prior to this, which is, I think, a movie that has aged better than most people think it has because there's a lot of kind of satirical elements to this movie. Sure. And apparently, like, the script of that movie was also, like, way more satirical, way more biting. Yeah. Instead, they're like, let's make Garden State 2, but in L.A. It's a movie that is an audition for something bigger. 
And what was bigger for Mark Webb ended up being Spider-Man. They do the amazing Spider-Man and bring in Andrew Garfield to play Peter Parker as another teenager. Serious? Who are you? No one seems to grasp the concept of the mask. Now, I think one of the things we should talk about is that Tobey Maguire by Spider-Man 3 has now graduated college and he's an adult male. And then Andrew Garfield comes in fresh off of the social network and he still looks old, but he's trying to play a high school student. It, it all felt very Twilighty, And like if they could have gotten Robert Pattinson, they would have. In my head, I was just like, I was like, oh, I remember I saw these and I, I don't know if I even did. I think I might have had the fatigue already set in from Spider-Man 3. And The Amazing Spider-Man 1 came out in 2012. So it was four years. That seems like a long time in our, you know, sort of uh, short attention span society, but it's really not that long for people to shake the feeling of Spider-Man 3 off of them. You can't really, like, go back to that well until you've really considered what is going to be different about this. And what ended up being different about those movies and the Raimi movies were really insignificant. I think the thing that people remember the most from these movies is <laughs> Paul Giamatti as Rhino <laughs> in the little suit. Not even like him being Rhino, but like the before they put the CGI on, like him with the little dots on his face screaming. It's like a meme now. Yeah, this is wild. Okay, so here's what happened after Amazing Spider-Man 2. Didn't even bomb. It just was like not very well liked in 2014. Then Sony, Sony and Marvel make a deal. Because Marvel is starting to prepare for the very literal end game of their cinematic universe. And they want to bring in Spider-Man for Civil War. A deal is made because Sony has no idea what to do with Spider-Man. And Marvel is like, yes, we know exactly what we want to do with Spider-Man. So they create this opportunity for an exchange, a swap, where Spider-Man will appear in these movies, in the MCU movies, but Sony will release them and retain the rights to Spider-Man. And that created a whole new opportunity for Marvel and, and Kevin Feige and, and all of these very smart people to reimagine Spider-Man again. And so we had the Raimi movies, which are this kind of curious mix of light and dark. We've got these very dark Mark Webb movies that are like Twilight almost, uh, where Peter Parker is just completely depressed all the time. Very kind of Batman-y in that respect. And then you have the Marvel version and Tom Holland, who was... I think he's the best Spider-Man. Those wings carbon fiber when the rigidity flexibility ratio, which gotta say that's awesome. Man. I don't know if you've been in a fight before, but there's usually not this much talking. All right, sorry, my bad. I think he is because Spider-Man's funny and Tom Holland genuinely makes you believe like it's like this guy's kind of having a blast and would be nerdy and think himself funny enough to say these one-liners because that's what made Spider-Man so much fun to read as a kid. Absolutely, yeah. He was fun because he had a sense of fun. He was irreverent. He was amusing. He enjoyed being a superhero. Or he's just, I think maybe Tom McGuire is just too serious of a person. And so maybe didn't pull off the humor. I clearly can't say much for Andrew Garfield's, I'm realizing. He was a miserable character. Like in that first movie, he was just like, nobody likes me. I'm a freak. Don't look at me. I'm disgusting. I'm like, you're a beautiful man. What's wrong with you? What's so great about Tom Holland is just that he has so much charm. He's got an aw shucks quality to it. Exactly. Which is like why when something bad happens to him, you're just like, I don't know if he's going to recover from this emotionally. Yeah. And these movies also spend a lot of time with him in high school. 
the director that they brought in for this, an indie guy, another one who kind of made a John Hughes movie with Spider-Man. John Watts came in and said, all right, let's just do it as a high school movie. Let's give him his buddy. Let's give him his crush. Yep. And let's not worry so much about the operatic dramatic stuff that was weighing down those last two movies and arguably Spider-Man 3 too. And I think it's a really interesting movie because they play the, the childlike nature of this character for the first time. Instead of it being adults trying to be kids, like Tobey Maguire trying to be a teenager, is wild. And we don't have to see Tom Holland's origin story again. They just skip all that stuff. But one thing that they do skip that I think is frustrating to a lot of people, no Uncle Ben. We don't see Uncle Ben get killed. We don't see Spider-Man choose to assume his great responsibility in addition to his great power. We don't see any of that stuff. Tom Holland Spider-Man does not have an Uncle Ben. But what he does end up having is Tony Stark, Iron Man himself, the richest man in the world. I thought that was a great move, though. It's like we've seen the Uncle Ben thing. We know it intrinsically. And for this kid to try and find another, you know, he has no actual father, finds a father figure in Uncle Ben, loses his father figure. That's what makes it so rad, his connection to Tony Stark and how that's why it was so brutal. When, you know, Tony essentially sacrifices himself, you know. Well, you said the magic word, Jonah. What's that word? Oh, 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 it's time once again for a segment we call Galaxy Dance. Galaxy Dance. Galaxy Dance. Galaxy Dance. You gotta say I love you back. I want to hear it. You dropping me off at school? I love you, Dad. I love you. That's a copy. Okay, Uncle Ben. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. He gives a wonderful speech in that car, in that scene before he gets killed, where he explains the whole, it is the basis of what what Spider-Man is. What what did you think of Cliff Robertson as Uncle Ben in Spider-Man 1? Come on, 10. On the Galaxy Dad scale, Uncle Ben is a 10. Uncle 10, I call him. <laughs> this is his nephew that he's raising. He took on the responsibility. He took on the responsibility to have a powerful position in a human's life, and that is to be a, a sort of father figure. And you know, all he wanted was to make sure this kid wasn't a dick because he didn't have parents. Uncle Ben is a 10. Uncle 10, I'll say it. Say it again. Absolutely. He's great. I, I love Cliff Robertson in this movie. I obviously am giving Cliff Robertson Uncle Ben a 10 as well. I'll give uh, uh, Martin Sheen as Uncle Ben a five. I mean, he does his best. He's trying, but poor Peter is so tortured. He can't just pull his head out of his own ass. All right, finally, Tony Stark. Tony is a surrogate father for... Peter Parker in the Spider-Man Marvel Cinematic Universe trilogy. What do you think about Tony Stark? You got a passport? Uh, no, I don't. I don't even have a driver's license. You ever license. been to Germany? No. Oh, you'll love it. I can't go to Germany. Why? I, I got homework. Right, I'm going to pretend you didn't say that. I'll give Tony Stark a six. He is trying his best as a guy who had a very complicated relationship with his own father and lost him prematurely. Maybe. Um, being a kind of father figure to Peter Parker inspired him to become a father of his own, like an, an actual biological father and have a kid of his own. Yeah. So, of course, Peter disappears during the the, the snap, the blip 
as they call it in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, at the end of Infinity War. And I think, if I'm remembering Endgame as well as I should, part of why he was inspired to finally settle down and have a kid is because he lost Peter. So I'm on board with this. I like Tony in this role. He really learns a lot through the course of the decade plus that they've made these movies. There is one Spider-Man movie we did not talk about that I want to briefly talk about, and I think it's the one that people love the most now that didn't really hit me the way that it hit other people, but I see why they loved it, and that's Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. When do I know I'm Spider-Man? You won't. That's all it is, Miles. A leap of faith. And that is a movie that really does take great pains to put Spider-Man back on the street, so to speak. Spider-Man is not a super spy. He's not Batman. He's not Iron Man. He's very much part of the firmament of New York City's working class. It's much more in line with what I think people are looking for with Spider-Man, which is that he's relatable. But another thing that I think really works with Miles Morales is he's a he's a teenager. He's a child. Spider-Man has to be a kid. And I do think, you know, when you really talk about it, he does need to be broke. I think no more nouveau reach Spider-Man. We've got that. Let's move forward. Let's take Spider-Man back to his roots. Agreed. Agreed. Right? Agreed. Whoa, wait. What? Wait, hold on. What the fuck was that? What the fuck was what? Someone who sounds exactly like you was talking over me. David Cross? No. Pat Oswalt? No, it was literally you. Oh, hey, Jonah. It's me, Dave, from an alternate universe where Galaxy Brains is a huge mainstream success. Whoa, awesome. What, what's that like? It's great. I married to one of the uh, Jenner family. Kylie? No, Chris. Two months into the show's run, she replaces Jonah with Kevin Hart, and we blow up. Oh. Wait a minute. How did a second Dave end up here? There's a fissure. A break in your reality. Those glitches from last week, those? Those were an anomaly tearing a hole into your universe. So you're saying that like in Spider-Man No Way Home, there are different versions of me and Dave in parallel dimensions? Yep. Wait, what's the me from your universe up to? I got four words for you, pal. Mystery Science Theater oh. 4,000. 4,000? Oh, yeah. It's a thousand times better than the original. I'd watch that. Do I make a thousand more dollars? No, but you do start a thousand more episodes. As long as I don't ever have to watch Mac and me again. <laughs> Uh, so about that. What the fuck? Second, Dave, how do we close this portal between dimensions? The only way to close a portal is to go to the source, my good man. You have to find the architect. Oh, God, I can't even find my mask half the time before I leave the house. I believe in you. Why? Because I am you. You are very handsome and sexy and smart. Don't forget fashionable. Wow, you really do write these shows completely unsupervised, don't you? No gods, no masters. Well, when we come back from the ad break, we'll be joined by the queen of the multiverse, Susanna Polo, who will explain why Spider-Man should always be a dorky teen. Stick around. So, no, like, weird paradox or anything from us meeting, I guess? No, no. Then, uh, should we kiss? Just to see what it's like. Absolutely. Let's go. Please don't, please don't, please get don't. Roll the ad, Kylie. Roll oh, the ad, Kylie. Some no, daddy. no, please, oh, Kylie. Please stop it now. Oh, that was nice.
Welcome back to Galaxy Brains. I kissed myself. It was better than I could have expected. Unfortunately, Jonah hightailed it out of the recording studio the minute we asked him to be our third. Anyways, our special guest today is Susanna Polo, who will leave no brilliant take unsaid as we ponder the future of the Spider-Man franchise. Susanna, thank you for coming back. You are our first ever three-time guest. This is rarefied territory. Awesome. Yeah, you're like Steve Martin on SNL in the 70s. You're just, you're killing it. I got the hat trick. First, let's talk about the beginnings of Spider-Man because I am adamant that Spider-Man should always be a teenager and should be a poor little wastrel. It shouldn't be, you know, kind of a fancy pants little Lord Fauntleroy like he is in these MCU movies. So talk to me about how Spider-Man came to be and why he was very specifically a teenager in a lower middle class family. So Spider-Man's first issues are credited to uh, Stan Lee and an artist called Steve Ditko, who were sort of like the classic, like those are the guys who created Spider-Man. His actual origin is kind of like a little murkier. Jack Kirby asserted for many years that like at least, at very least inspired Stan Lee to make a spider-themed hero and that he had pitched some ideas about a teenage hero that Stan sort of liked and sort of didn't. And it's just one of those, you know, all of these guys have a different take on it. And all we can really say is like, they all probably contribute to what eventually became Spider-Man. Yeah, it's a very problematic situation, these these comic book origin stories. And more often than not, at Marvel specifically, because it didn't seem like there was much order. <laughs> there was like a lot of chaos was going on. Well, the way Marvel comics are made specifically, like allowed Stan Lee to work on a lot of different comics in sort of like minimal idea generating way. And then sort of gave artists leeway to like completely come up with the stories for the books, the designs for the characters. It was a very collaborative, very like messy, not clear who was in charge of what kind of way. But it was a, it was a very fast way to make a lot of comics that were sort of internally consistent. Sounds like a sweet gig for Stan Lee. Oh, what if, what if we did a superhero wore a mask? All right, I'll go draw a superhero for you, Stan. Here, here we go. Ah, oh, yes, there he is. Spider-Man, who I created. Thank you very much for making that for me. And then he collects millions of dollars. Anyway, I think if you haven't read True Believer, the Abe Reisman book about Stan Lee, you absolutely should. It's a fascinating story of how he kind of became the number one name in comic books. But we're here to talk about Spider-Man. I want to talk about Spider-Man and aging specifically because it does happen. But because of the nature of comic books, they are, they're static in a lot of ways. Batman is always about in his mid-30s. Superman's always about in his mid-30s. Spider-Man, though, because he is a teenager, he does age up sometimes, reboots and him back down to high school. Like, tell me about the times when Spider-Man is forced to age in, in comic books. So there have been a few times in Marvel continuity where Peter Parker has kind of like taken on more adult trappings in his life than we usually associate with him. He's gotten married to Mary Jane. They were expecting a kid for a while. That didn't really work out, but we don't have to explain that. It's fine. And then there have been different ways that different writers have tried to solve the problem of, huh, like Peter's not really a teenager anymore. In the 90s, the really infamous clone saga tried to spin this story about how Peter Parker we've been following since like the 1970s, literally, was actually a clone of Peter Parker. And the real Peter Parker had been living his own life under the name Ben Riley. But then they chickened out on that and they said, oh, no, sorry, uh, the real Peter Parker is the real Peter Parker. Forget everything about Ben Riley. He's really a clone. 
there's been one other point where writers sort of like, we need to turn back the clock on Peter Parker and we need to take away some of his more like the things about him that are more grown up things. And it's clearly a story that has had some influence on Spider-Man No Way Home, which is um, Spider-Man One More Day, which is this plot arc after Marvel's Civil War, where in order to save Aunt May's life, Peter made a deal with Mephisto, who is the Satan of the Marvel Universe, where for just because Mephisto Mephisto is mean and evil and likes to be mean and evil was like, I will save your aunt's life and make it so she doesn't die. And also erase, this is the part that goes to Spider-Man, No Way Home, is that Mephisto's like, I will erase all knowledge of your secret identity from the world because Peter Parker revealed himself in Civil War. And Mephisto's like, I will do that for the low, low price of making it so that your marriage to Mary Jane never happened because he's mustache twirlingly evil. And that happened. And it sort of put him back into this place of like hapless, lonely, and nothing ever goes right, Peter Parker again. Such a, an interesting thing that is littered throughout comic book history, which is we got to do something new. We got to freshen this up. Let's marry Peter Parker and Mary Jane to sell some comics. And then, of course, you have to go back at some point to square one, because what people really love about the character is the character in that specific milieu in that situation. I think it's Stan Lee who he would put it as the readers want the illusion of change, but they don't actually want change. They want to feel like characters are growing and changing, but they don't actually want their favorites to change in a significant way, or at least for a very long time. I think that's true of the movie series now, too. I think a lot of the superhero movie franchises that have endured are the ones that give you that quote-unquote illusion of change that give you that feeling that oh things are a little different you know batman's got a different car this time superman's uh, cape is is a little bit more red but it's really still giving you the same kinds of thrills and chills and then when they don't succeed it's when they go too far afield from what you really like about the character but one of the, the Marvel-adjacent films that people loved was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And I want to talk a little bit about Miles Morales because Miles allows for the clean return of Spider-Man to street-level teenage stories. There's no baggage there like there is with Peter Parker, where Peter has to grow and, and change and there's 50, you know half a century or, or how long it's been of stories told about this character. Miles is a clean slate. He's a great character. Um, and that's actually one of the reasons that he was created in the first place is that Brian Michael Bendis, who was working on Ultimate Spider-Man, which is set in Marvel's Ultimate Universe that was supposed to be, let's make these characters young again, let's restart their continuities and let's tell modern stories. They were like, I think they were 10 years into that. And he was looking at Spider-Man in the main universe and going, well, you know, like right now, Peter Parker is, he's running his own company. Parker Industries, he's got a ton of money, like everything's kind of going well for him. He's still Peter Parker, but he's not the classic Peter Parker archetype that we understand. And there's an opportunity here to, in this parallel universe that doesn't affect the main Marvel universe, to create a character who fits that archetype, but is also, is, is more modern, who speaks to a more modern idea of a kid from Queens who needs opportunities in life. The interesting thing about, you know, this is the case with like almost all sidekick characters, that once there is a legacy character who, be, who is really popular and is going to be remain in remain in the setting for a while, it means you can't de-age the character that they were inspired by. Dick Grayson grew up and he became Nightwing and then we made some other Robins and now we can't really age him back down to being Robin because 
there are these other Robins, there are these other younger kids that he has mentored. And I think the state we're in right now is it'd be really tricky to make Peter Parker a teenager again, because Miles is there. And Miles is filling that niche. And he is also a character that Peter is a mentor to. And it'll be interesting to see how long this current bump of Peter being the grown up Spider Man. <laughs> Um, lasts. The question of mentorship or the idea of mentorship is really crucial in Spider-Man lore from the beginning. You know, Peter has a mentor and that's Uncle Ben. And then, you know, there are other mentor figures who then become corrupt. If it's Norman Osborn or if it's Otto Octavius or the Lizard, whomever it might be, you know, there are these characters that come into Peter's life. They're grown-ups who try to give Peter a path and then they become corrupted in some way and Peter is disappointed by them. The only one who doesn't disappoint Peter is Uncle Ben because he's dead and he can't disappoint him. How important is this sort of mentor-student relationship to Spider-Man and the reason why it works? It's a very common theme in Spider-Man stories, especially early Spider-Man stuff, the Stan Lee and the Ditko era and some of the Romita stuff. Douglas Wolk in this really great book that came out this year called All of the Marvels um, categorizes one of Spider-Man's major themes as being needing a father figure that you can see in his early stories, almost all of the villains that they introduce sort of fit that role in some way that the, the lizard is, is, you know, a scientific colleague that he looks up to. Dr. Octopus wants to marry Aunt May. Twisted. The Green Goblin turns out to be his best friend's dad. And you see that in the MCU Spider-Man movies where even if Uncle Ben isn't present, Peter is still looking for a father figure. You know, he's still looking at Tony Stark for mentorship. In the second movie, he's looking at Mysterio. In the third movie, who knows, it'll be maybe it'll be Doctor Strange. And it really, like, I think it's just one of those things where, like, one of the ways that you make Spider-Man a teen is that he is vulnerable and he's looking for guidance. And this is just a theory. Is it one of the reasons why... Peter Parker has to be grown up now is because the vast majority of comic book readers are adults. When Spider-Man was invented, most people who read comic books were school-aged children. And that was a pastime for school-aged children. And so Spider-Man existed as this character that they could relate to. That's not necessarily the case now because so many people who read comic books are adults. You know, my son finds out about Spider-Man through the Disney Plus cartoons not through reading comic books. And so I wonder if Peter Parker existing as an adult allows for the continued identification the audience has with the character. That's definitely a cycle in superhero comics. And you can even see in like stuff that that's even as like influential as like The Dark Knight Returns. Frank Miller's talked about it. He's like, yeah, I was inspired to make this story because I realized that I'd turned 30 and that meant I was older than Batman. <laughs> um, and I didn't want to be older than Batman. So I had to make up a, a way older Batman. Yeah, I think that there are these cyclical waves of like adults who want to relate to the stories that they saw when they were kids. I mean, we're seeing this all over media right now, right? Like we're seeing all of these like, you know, more adult versions of, of children's media. <laughs> Everything in comics is a phase. And I think Peter is going through an adult phase right now. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about the MCU because you brought up the lack of Uncle Ben. And this is a thing that a lot of people on the internet, especially people on Twitter, is that because of the lack of Uncle Ben, Peter is now being mentored from beyond the grave by Iron Man, by Tony Stark. And what does that mean for the character? It means that the character now is no longer a poor orphan boy in Queens. Now he's, you know, the heir apparent to a 
a multi-trillion dollar arms business. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, famously in Far From Home, he had access to a weapons platform orbiting the planet. <laughs> and he could do all kinds of surveillance on his classmates and so, which is a far cry from what we saw in the first Spider-Man MCU movie, Homecoming, which was really just about Spider-Man trying to get a date to the dance. And that's what I found so charming about it. And my favorite scene in that whole movie is him in the car with Vulture. Who, again, is now his date's dad. Exactly. So, like, another, even more of a father figure. What a perfect thing, though, to have him be both the date's father and the villain that he's trying to defeat. Like, it's just such a perfect Spider-Man dynamic. Right. Yeah. We've gotten away from that now. And now Spider-Man is, you know, controlling drones <laughs> and he's got like a robot suit. And in the new movie, he's going into multiple dimensions and things of that nature. Do you think that something is missed by having Tony Stark be this father figure for him instead of Uncle Ben? I think, I mean, what we're talking about are all different aspects of Spider-Man that have existed at certain times. There have been eras of Spider-Man where he had a machine suit that Tony gave him that had like six extra mechanical legs. And there have been eras of Spider-Man where, you know, obviously where he hops through dimensions. And this is my big comic book reader caveat is like all versions of the character share some core, you know, similarity to blah, blah, blah. And you know, everything is transient and the character will come back to like, you know, first purposes at some point, blah, 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 blah. which is all to say, yeah, I think there, there's been some very legitimate criticism that like Peter Parker in the MCU movies really like took a leap away from friendly neighborhood Spider-Man to like, I mean, the second movie, he's on a European vacation. Like, sure, it's a school trip, but he's still on a European vacation. <laughs> he's not in his neighborhood. It's not do a flip Spider-Man. He's not getting to know the bodega guy. And he's definitely not that in the MCU movies after the first film. They take him to Europe. They give him a bunch of drones. He goes to space. You know, he dissolves into dust. <laughs> and it's, I don't know. It seems like his third movie is just going to go even further. I mean, it's it's in the title. Yeah. Well, I wonder if this is an opportunity for them to retcon everything and go back to square one, because he is asking for things to change significantly, that he, things have gone too far, both for Peter as a character and for the idea of Spider-Man in these movies, is that he has done everything now, as you pointed out. Every different kind of type of Spider-Man you've sort of seen now in these movies. You've seen the, the street-level, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man beating up bad guys trying to rob a bank. You've seen Spider-Man kind of like a spy character almost in the second one, going around gallivanting through Venice and that kind of thing. You've seen him reveal himself to the world or be revealed to the world by J. Jonah Jameson at the end of Far From Home. And now you're going to have multiple different versions of Spider-Man and his villains floating around in the climax of the new movie. At the end of it, is there a way that they possibly maybe roll it all back through, you know, Marvel mystical magic? Well, you know, it's the it's the final film in a trilogy. It's like that's certainly a good note to end on is to sort of pull them all back in and, and you know, give them that nice little happy going to school, hanging out with Aunt May, sort of full circle kind of situation. I mean, I think the only thing that I, you know, that I think would keep that from happening is that this is an ongoing cinematic universe and producers are going to keep, even if they don't make any more Spider-Man movies, 
Tom Holland is probably going to, you know, they're going to want him around to make cameos and things and continue his character. And it could be very much a situation where like at the end of Iron Man three, Tony threw all of his suits into the ocean and he said, I'm not Iron Man. And he said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then Captain America Civil War came out and it's just like he was still being Iron Man. And we just didn't talk about Oh, and Iron Man 3, he'd given up on all of that, and it had been very nice. Did that bother you? Oh, yeah. That, yes. It bothered me, too, to an extensive degree. And I'm I'm not one of the Iron Man 3 fans. It's my least favorite of the Iron Man trilogy, but that really sticks in my craw. The idea that he'd had this epiphany at the end, and he's going to settle down with, with Pepper, and then he's right back to it. We need to put armor around the world. Mm, Tony, I thought you mm, I thought we'd gone through this. But you know, it's the illusion of change, but not actual change. That's the, I think the most important thing we can talk about. And where I want to kind of wrap up today is the illusion of change. And going back to the beginning, having character development, but then going back. That's why I'm really tickled with this idea, having not seen the movie, that some of the things that occurred in the previous cycle of Spider-Man movies will be rolled back and retconned in some way. If that happens, or similarly, like what happened with Iron Man 3 into the rest of the, the MCU franchise, will people be upset? Do you think people would be mad if, even though we've seen all these things happen to Peter Parker, when the, the multiverse is tied up, he's back just in school as a regular kid again. Will people be upset? Yeah, and I think and I think it's complicated by like, it, this is the idea of this is that it's an end, that it's the end of a story, which is something you never get in comics. You never walk into a story going, oh, this is going to be the last Spider-Man story. And then they're not going to make any for like, who knows how long? Like, we don't know. And then when they do, it'll be totally different because that's totally a cinematic thing. You know, if they, if they, it doesn't seem, they have not said they are going, all they're in, Stated intentions are, is this is the final Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. Yeah, anything can happen, but... It's the last one they're contracted to do. I know that. Right. And that's, I think, a different, like... That's a different standpoint to walk into a Spider-Man story from. And I think that will... If they do wind up sort of rolling everything back and just making him friendly neighborhood Spider-Man again, I think there are a lot of people who think that that is a good ending. And, and because they're trying to make an ending, right? Theoretically, Neither of us have seen it, but the goal, as they've stated, is that they are trying to make it an ending to this trilogy. But Peter coming back home, I mean, home is the, that's the, I don't want to get like too obvious about it, but like, that's the whole theme of the Spider-Man trilogy, at least in the titles. And it feels like that would be fitting, I think. I think people, I think that the fitness of that ending would resonate with more people than it wouldn't. Absolutely. I, I, I tend to agree. And we have come full circle with you, Susanna, on this episode. Thank you so much for joining us again. It is always a pleasure to talk comic books with you. Awesome. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on this week's Galaxy Brains. Next week, our hunt for the architect reaches its natural conclusion when we discuss the Matrix Resurrections. I don't know about you, but I'm nervous to meet the architect. What if he thinks the show sucks? Oh, I'm sure he does. Well, he can't blame just us, okay? Because Galaxy Brains is produced by Kylie Holloway and me, Dave Schilling. The show is engineered by Dan Turek with music from Gautam Shrikashin. Our executive producer is Matt Patches and our developing producer is Zach Mack. Polygon's editor-in-chief is Chris Plant and Russ Frustick is the director of special projects. Special thanks to Andrew Melanzik, who helped create the show. Until next time, I'm Jonah. And I'm Dave. And I'm also Dave. Oh, fuck. Just leave, please. I have nowhere else to go. Here's 50 bucks. Go to Buffalo Wild Wings. Ha <laughs> ha. Goodbye, losers. 
Gonna have to say, Dave, that other Dave, it's a cooler Dave. I mean, he's successful and he's married to Chris Jenner. I couldn't even be married to like, I don't know. Anyone for more than a couple of years. Yeah, pretty much. Let me look at me. My track record is horrible. 